Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to the Aging Boomers. I'm your host, Frank Sampson, of course, on our show. We discuss so many of the issues that are facing boomers, their parents, and what we know, of course, is an aging population. And I want to just uh, thank everybody for all their support. So many of you have uh, gone on to iTunes uh, uh, and uh, or Stitcher, Spreaker, uh, iHeartRadio, and, and just put your information in you get up to date on uh, all of our uh, all of our shows and all the interviews with uh, some great people uh, of course uh, I would say that probably most of you just download our free app which you can do on your iPhone Android phone just go to your app section type in the aging boomers download it for free and you can get up to date uh, uh, information on all, all, all the shows want to remind everybody that today's show is sponsored by Senior Care Authority, a professional senior placement and elder care management organization uh, that has a national network of advisors to help in determining the right path for senior living and receiving proper care. So whether it's in-home care, assisted living, residential or memory care, or you just need an advocate to kind of help you through the process, uh, you can get the necessary advice you need from a senior care advisor in your area by calling Senior Care Authority at 888-809-1231, or you can go directly to the website at www.seniorcareauthority.com. And um, I'm, you know, there's a number of reasons that I was really looking forward to uh, today's guest, but we're talking about a real important subject matter. Um, i uh, like to introduce uh, Stan Goldberg, who has his PhD as Professor Emeritus of, commu of Communicative, communic <laughs> I gotta get my, uh, Communicative Disorders at San Francisco State University, and author of a brand new book just coming out, Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient. He is a prolific award-winning writer, editorial consultant, and recognized expert in the area of cancer support, end-of-life issues, caregiving, chronic illnesses, aging, and change. Stan has more than 300 publications, presentations, workshops, and interviews. He's garnered 22 national and international awards for his writing. And it's just uh, a pleasure to have you uh, on The Aging Boomer. Stan, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Frank. I'm honored to be on your show. Yeah. So, you know, an important subject and, you know, kind of the topic of our discussion today, um, I guess I'll get right to the point. All right. What, what would you recommend someone do and say uh, to help uh, adjust to the news of a cancer diagnosis to a loved one? Yeah. 
You know, um, in a number of workshops that I that I've done, that the question I ask people, you know, is, what would you f- immediately say when someone says to you, "I have cancer," and the responses. All, you know, I would say maybe 80 to 90% of the responses were all the same. And it was, uh, I'm so sorry to hear that, or some other expression of compassion. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that that's spoken from someone's heart. But the person with a cancer diagnosis is going through some incredible changes. You know, the first thing is, to tell you, to tell another person that they have a life-threatening illness it is, is not something that's just blurted out, but rather it's, there's a lot of thought going into there. The person is, you know, is assuming the position of a vulnerable person, someone whose lifespan may be shortened. And even though they would like to hear or they, they are very you know, uh, accepting of compassionate thoughts, what they need to hear more is specific things that, that their loved one or friend is willing to do for them. And that's what I went through. You know, I was diagnosed with cancer 13 years ago. And I was, you know, very judicious in who I um, revealed that diagnosis to. And what I found in retrospect, looking back, is the most helpful responses were ones that were specific. And it could be something as simple as, you know, someone says to you, I have cancer and I'm going in for treatments and, you know, I'm going to be weak afterwards. Instead of giving a general response such as, if you need anything, call. A much better approach is to be specific, such as, I know you're going to be weak after your treatment. What time should I be here Thursday morning to take you shopping? So that, that's, that's the, 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 the important place to begin. It's never about trying to find the right words, because there, there will be no right words. Um, but it's fine, trying to find something that the person with cancer can hold on to and say, yeah, here's a person who's willing to be with me on my journey. That's great suggestions. Uh, I know that you know things have changed where uh, people... You know, might have gone into the into the hospital for uh, certain treatments, whether it be chemo, radiation, whatever the case may be. But now, I guess uh, people are more going into, uh, I guess, outpatient. You know, and, get, and getting treatments. I mean, do you? Uh, what, what's your thoughts on somebody saying, "I want to," you know, "I want to be with you while you're having this treatment." You know, uh, is that going a little too far, or that kind of depends on the relationship? Well, I, I think, yes, it depends upon the relationship, but I don't think it's going too far. I know in, with, with a client that I, I counseled a couple of years ago, what she said to me was, and I had asked her, I said, what was the most, the most supportive thing that happened to you uh, in this cancer journey of yours? And her response was, my friend sitting next to me while I was getting um, you know, chemotherapy and just sitting there and being willing to hold my hand. So I, I think that anything that concretely expresses the willingness of someone to be with you on this cancer journey is not only appropriate, but is wonderful. 
the you know I, I like to get into a little bit of statistics uh, not that we have to be exact but it, i uh, i remember my grandfather he had you know cancer and i remember people didn't even want to say the word it was the c word mm -hmm. all right and and things have changed quite you know quite a bit um, and it's not a, not a death sentence anymore. You know, obviously it depends on the type of cancer, when it's diagnosed, et cetera. But uh, tell us a little bit about kind of the, the changes, I, I guess more upbeat news is what I'm looking for, yeah. uh, for people that uh, may have been diagnosed with some form of cancer. Yeah. Uh, modern medicine is terrific. Um, I mean, I, I'm 13 years post-diagnosis. Um, 20 years ago, if I had developed cancer then, I would have been dead. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are new changes that uh, are, that's extending the lives of people with cancer. And, and sometimes it can extend it to the point where other issues will take someone's life. But I think what, what gets lost in the optimism, and, and I am optimistic, I, I hope I will live another 10 years, but what gets lost is because we are able to live longer with a debilitating disease, um, we need to think what's necessary to adapt. And I think that tends to be overlooked. I mean, I never, I never talk about myself as a survivor. You know, that, that implies a, a win or a losing situation. I know that until I die, I will need to deal with my cancer. And the way that I do that is to adapt. Uh, when I'm tired, I understand what's going on, and I slow down. When I'm feeling terrific, you know, I know that I can do things otherwise I couldn't do. So it's, it's that adaptation that I think people are still ignoring um, you know, when they think, oh, you know, I, I'm going to live much longer now because modern medicine has, has, uh, allows that. And it's true, but these are the issues that make life, you know, acceptable, miserable, or neutral. So it's that adaptation, the coping, that I think is getting lost. Right. So going back to what you were saying about, you know, being a little more specific with people when you, uh, you know, hear about this, I know um, I was fortunate enough to get kind of an advanced copy of your book that's just coming up, coming out. And one of the things you did talk about is uh, about actions or, uh, you know, maybe uh, being more important than uh, even uh, words. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts there. Well, um, one, one of the things that I lost um, following the cancer diagnosis was my ability to go alone um, into, the, into the wilderness and fly fish. And it was something that was an important part of my life. Uh, I you know, would do it quite often, and so I would you know, stay out for, for two weeks. Well, I couldn't do that alone anymore. And, you know, it, it, you know, so what people did is instead of telling me how terrible uh, what it was, was I was experiencing, they offered to take me out into the wilderness, which would defeat the whole purpose of going to the wilderness was to be alone. But they also offered to take me fishing with a bucket of worms at, at a nearby fish and pay place. Well, 
you know that you you know one could look at that as as thinking that was insensitive, but it wasn't. It was a very specific action that that someone offered, and I accepted it and sat there with with worms and a, a can of beer and sitting in a lawn chair and fished. So it's the intent uh, that's more important than the actual behavior. And, and I think, you know, those of us living with cancer know the difference. Right. Um, no, that's, uh, that's important. Because some people, once you say, they, they just have a tough time uh, expressing their thoughts, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, they, they do, but they all, there's also this fear, you know. I mean, as a society, uh, we, we look at death as being something separate from life. And if we, you know, main, if we can maintain that separation, we can hold off on thinking about death forever until something like cancer, which is life-threatening, occurs. And when that happens, you know, we're afraid, you know. Uh, I, I know that shortly after my cancer diagnosis, uh, I had people afraid to ask me how I was doing because they were afraid of hearing that I wouldn't be around much longer. So, yeah, I, I think that fear uh, often prevents people from saying and doing things that could be very helpful. Um, I've never had cancer, and I hope it remains that way the rest of my life. But I try, even though it's difficult to try to put myself into someone's shoes when they hear that news. And I guess uh, I would want to know from the doctor, well, what do we, I mean, either how, how much time do I have? What, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what's kind of the outlook here? Um, and many times, you know, you hear people that say, well, they've got, you know, a year, they got six months, they got two years, whatever the case may be, which is, I know, an opinion, probably based on historical data, I would think. But, and many times people far, you know, go far past that period of time. So, how do you, what's your thoughts when you hear that type of information about somebody that they were yeah. given a time period? Um, well, you know, I, I worked, I was a hospice volunteer for eight years. So I was able to be with people that had a formal, you know, terminal diagnosis. And uh, everyone had been told, been given predictions of how long they would live. Uh, very rarely is it accurate. You know, it's such a wide range that, you know, it, to tell someone you only have two years to live or you have three years to live isn't very helpful. And, and that's what we tend to, to be stuck on. Instead of, of thinking about how much time I have left, because uh, this is something that, that I needed to do, uh, I think about what can I do to make this day uh, as good as it can be, given the fact that I don't know how much longer I have. It's a very different approach. Um, and it's, it's one that involves balancing reality and hope. Now, for me, that's the approach that works. For some people, that is uh, too direct and too honest of an approach. Uh, a friend of my mother had stomach cancer. It was, it was obvious to all of her friends 
that she was dying. But this was a woman who was, who was afraid of death and never would talk about it. So for her, it was important, it was the compassionate thing for people not to tell her how little time she had left. She had left. So it, it's, it's different for everybody. The most successful approaches I've seen are one that, that balances hope and reality. So what suggestions do you have for those in the medical community, physicians themselves, who have to relay this information to their patient? Yeah. Physicians have gotten a lot better over the past 10 years. There was a period of time when, you know, physicians felt conveying a terminal diagnosis to patients uh, resulted in less time that they would have. And, you know, the research has shown that's not true. <laughs> it, has, it has no direct, you know, relevance to that. So what I, I can actually, I'll contrast two um, physicians that I had and a different approach. When I was first diagnosed, the physician was very reluctant to tell me uh, what uh, my diagnosis, what my prognosis was. But, you know, I had done enough reading and I knew that with a Gleason score of eight or seven, I, I was close to having a form of cancer that would be difficult to control. Um, so I knew that, and yet he would not deal with the possibility that I would die. I currently have an oncologist who has a 180-degree different view. And his approach, and, and he was very specific with me, he says, I would like to keep you alive as long as I can in the best quality of life that's possible. Now, to me, that, that's the perfect balance of hope and reality. And I would hope that, that other physicians could go the same way. Right. Now that's, that's, that's a good approach. I like that. Um, so what about dealing with uh, a loved one who uh, is going you know, through treatments? They've got side effects. They've got discomfort. They have pain. How do you suggest to you know family caregivers, loved ones, uh, to deal with those types of situation? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think people need to start with with the following assumption, and that is the life of a person living with cancer will be different than the life that you're leaving leading, and it also differs significantly from their pre-diagnostic life. So we start with an understanding that we're dealing with, with two different ways of perceiving the world. And that involves, uh, the result is a better understanding of what that cancer patient is going through. You know, quite often, people who don't have cancer have expectations of the person with cancer. And a lot of those expectations are based on what that person was able to do prior to the diagnosis. I had a patient that I worked with uh, who prior to her cancer diagnosis was the most compassionate person in the world. Uh, she cared for other people's feelings. She offered help. She did a lot of things that suggested that here was a very giving person. With her diagnosis um, of you know, stage three breast cancer, uh, her life now became something that she needed to re-examine and, re and prioritize. So 
you know, all of a sudden, people who didn't realize what she was going through viewed her, um, what, they, what they perceived to be uh, uh, a sort of a coldness in how she would react to the situations that in the past she appeared to be compassionate about. So that, that, that's the place to begin. You're, dealing, you're living in two different worlds. And before making judgments about the intent uh, of someone with, who lives with cancer, the, the intent of their words or behaviors, try to understand what they're going through. In their minds, they don't know how long they have to live. They don't know whether they've made a significant contribution to the world. They don't know, you know, how people are going to react to them. So in this very confusing world, it's very easy to misinterpret what they say and do. So decision-making, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there are patients out there that that have cancer and uh, they might be a little, you know, confused or whatever, but they, you know, still want to make decisions and be independent and, and all of that. What happens in a situation where, you know, your loved one that has cancer is, uh, you know, making certain decisions that you may not totally agree with? Is that something, I mean, how do you handle that type of a, that type of a Well, I, I had to go through that with my brother-in-law who died of um, uh, brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And he was making decisions that I thought were ludicrous. You know, he had already had one uh, major operation uh, to remove as much of the tumor as possible. Uh, and with, with glioblastomas, it's very difficult to remove everything. So I knew that the likelihood that uh, any additional treatment would be beneficial was minimal. And yet he found, and this is on the Internet, a procedure, uh, a surgical procedure that almost guaranteed that he would get rid of the tumor. And I knew it was a scam. So the question is, you know, what, what can I do to convince him that this wasn't a proper approach? Well, I realized I couldn't because he was holding on to this procedure as, as his last hope. And there was no way that I was going to convince him to not have the operation. What that did was what many caregivers have to go through constantly, and that's despite believing your loved one is making a mistake, instead of withdrawing, you need to be there to support it, even knowing that this is a disastrous choice. And that happens a lot. Uh, it's unfortunate, but sometimes, you know, in, in chronic illness and in end-of-life issues, we are left with, the on with only being able to sit there, literally, figuratively, hold our loved one's hand and support them. So that, yeah. that's... That's something I think is very difficult for, for caregivers to accept. What, what if you, in the situation you just said with your brother-in-law, mm -hmm. right, he, he went, you know, going through a surgery that you were pretty confident it wasn't going to help him, okay? 
But mm-hmm. what if it was going to make the situation worse? Would you push harder? I probably wouldn't. Actually, I, I'm referring it back to, to that situation. I didn't because I knew, I mean, I pushed as hard as I could without destroying the trust he had in me. And because mm-hmm. tr- trust is, is a real important um, variable to protect with someone who has cancer. You know, we, we are vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable. And sometimes the most important thing for us is to trust you. Uh, if someone is arguing with me and telling me what a terrible decision I'm making and is being very strong about it, I may not trust them as much after that discussion ends. So, you know, I would say use whatever factual data is available. Um, and, and I do that, and I, uh, I suggest that to the caregivers I counsel, that, you know, use that kind of data it's more important to say, look, this is what this, you know, this is what, what the AMA says about this procedure. Uh, that's a more appropriate approach than saying you must be an idiot to believe that that this is a, a legitimate uh, a right. way to deal with cancer. Right. Okay. So I got one more question for you, and then I, I want you to, you know, tell our listeners more about your book, how they can get it. So I want to make sure we leave time for that. But some of the hard conversations, you certainly talked about one that you had with your brother-in-law, but uh, like you said earlier, everybody's different. Uh, You know, some people would probably, you know, some will openly talk about it, the the chance that they, you know, could die sooner than than planned. And uh, it, and they openly talk about it. Others kind of clam up and are, are fearful of death and, and won't discuss it. Uh, so how do you deal with that if, if somebody who does clam up and it's important for the loved one that they need to talk about it so at least the loved one can understand their wishes and all of that, and, but they clam up? How, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I think that there's a couple of different approaches, a short-term and a long-term. You know, the, the short-term uh, approach is, is one that I learned during my, my 10 years of hospice work. In the, those 10 years, I never brought up the topic of dying with my patients, even though they obviously knew they were dying since they were in hospice. Yet every single one of them knew, you know, at some time, started that discussion and they didn't start the discussion because I or anyone else pushed them but rather they were they were ready to talk about it I think the same thing applies to people with cancer even though it's non-terminal having cancer involves loss and uh, someone who is continually experiencing losses has a need to talk about that so if you feel that your loved one is avoiding dealing with certain issues, you know, then you can bring it up tangentially. So, for example, I had counseled a, a woman. She and her husband had been planning um, a, uh, a, it was a back, I think it was a backcountry trip or something. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember exactly what it was. But it was something that would have definitely taxed his ability severely. And instead of his wife saying to him, 
uh, you know, this is a terrible idea. We have to cancel this. What she did was to just very factually go over all the things that were necessary uh, to do the trip. So it was like, you, you know, we, we've got to walk uh, six miles a day with the rest of the group. And I noticed you were having difficulty walking around the block last week. Uh, do you think we, you know, we may want to think about changing it? So that was, that was one approach. That's the short-term immediate approach. The long-term approach has, has, is cultural. It has to do with our unwillingness to look at death as anything other than, you know, an, an uninvited, embarrassing relative. You know, we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to see it. Yet in some countries, you know, they, they deal with death as a part of living. And, it, you know, when situations occur that are life-threatening, the, the drama isn't nearly as great. You know, and it's, it's one simple example. In, when I was in Japan, you know, I would see a cemetery next to a dress shop, next to another cemetery, uh, next to a candy store. So even physically in some countries, death is, is viewed as a part of living. And I think in long-term trends, I think that's what we need to start doing. Great advice. I could talk to you for a while longer, certainly, about this subject matter. You've been a wealth of information. Speaking about a wealth of information, I'd love you to talk about your book. Uh, tell us more about it, how people can get it. Uh, it's it's wonderful. So yeah. it's commercial time. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, the book is called Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient. Uh, it can be ordered now uh, on Amazon or any of the other booksellers, and it will be released on October 16th. So you can put in your order now and know on that date it's going to come to you. The genesis of this book was the, the difficulties that I encountered uh, when I was diagnosed. So it's based on not only my issues, but what uh, cancer patients uh, over the last 10 years have told me worked for them and what didn't. Um, I also, on my website, stangoldbergwriter.com, uh, there are uh, a wealth of articles, probably over 200 articles, maybe a quarter of which deal with cancer. They're all free. They're downloadable. You can send them to friends and relatives, and that's there. And, and also on that site, there, there are many other books that I have written um, which would take too long to get into, uh, that, that relate with the issues of cancer, acute illness, end-of-life aging. Great. Dr. Stan Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us. Great information. Um, and uh, go to his website, stangoldbergwriter.com. Learn more about his book. Uh, you could go on Amazon uh, as well. Uh, and a lot of great uh, information to share. So, uh, and I want to, so Dr. Goldberg, thank you. And I want to thank everybody out there for joining us. And uh, just be safe out there. And we'll talk to you all soon. Okay, thanks, Frank. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.